Welcome to Practical Christian Living. He chooses the foolish to confound the wise. So there's no way that you can feel like you don't belong. Not only do you belong, but God's got a plan and He has a purpose for you. Do you know that? He chose you, He started it, and He's got a plan and He's got a purpose for you. There is something you have been called to do. Do you believe that God has a plan for your life, no matter what your life might look like right now? You may have think you've blown it or gone too far for God to ever use you, much less love you. But listen, nothing could be farther from the truth. As we've studied so far through Hebrews, God reaches down to pick you up. He dusts you off and He washes you clean and clothes you in His grace and forgiveness. Please stay with us for Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, again, we want to thank you for the time we were able to gather together, but we also pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and apply it to our lives. Uh, we know that your word is powerful and it is inspired. And we don't gather together that we might hear the philosophies of men or worldly wisdom. We want to know what you are saying to us. We pray that over the next 35 to 40 minutes that your Holy Spirit would take these truths and cut them deeply into our lives. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to start by reading verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 12 because it gives us the purpose that we are supposed to consider Jesus. It starts off by saying, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Are you weary? Are you discouraged? Jesus said, for those of you who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. Are, are, are there some here who maybe are in the middle of the race, but you've become discouraged in that race? The encouragement that we want to give today by looking at this passage is to make sure that you're in the race that God has given you to run. Christianity is not a self-help religion. It is not a way in which your life was really messed up. And if you invite Jesus into your life, then your life's going to be a whole lot better. Now, that might be your testimony. You, you may be able to say that. My life was an absolute mess. And because I went to the bottom, I invited Jesus in and my life is a ton better. In fact, I have that exact testimony, okay? But that's not the reason that he saves us. He saves us and calls us that we could shine for him in the middle of a dark, dying, and perishing world. He has called us the light of the world, and there are many that are on the road to destruction, and we are literally in the middle of a battle. And when you're talking about armies, morale is so important. And I think that these verses are verses for Christian morale. The Lord wants to kind of come alongside of you today and say, listen, this is going to be tough and things aren't always easy, but you need to keep going. You need to run the race that God has set before you with endurance. And some of you guys aren't running and you need to run. I read a story this last week about two men who worked for the gas company. One of them was a supervisor and the other one was a trainer. They parked their truck out on the end of an alley and they walked up the alley to the end of it and they were going to walk back to their truck. And so as they walked down the alley reading the different meters, they finally came to the last house. In the last house, there was a woman by her back door 
that was watching these guys read her meter. First of all, she thought it was odd that there were a couple of them, but she's standing and watching them. When they got done, they were finished with no more meters in the alley. So the supervisor turned to the trainee and said, I'll race you back to the truck. And they took off running, utility belts and all, back towards the truck. Well, the woman took off after them. They got down to the truck and they heard her running, huffing and puffing up behind them. And they turned around and they couldn't figure out what's, go what's, what's wrong. And she said, I don't know, but I just saw two guys from the gas company running from my house. <laughs> and so I thought I better run too. <laughs> you can imagine if you're watching those two gas guys, all of a sudden they say something to one another and then start running. You're like, my house is going to blow up. And they take off running after him as well. Now, I don't know why you're running the race. Are you running because you think things are going to explode or not? But we are all called to run a race. That's what the Christian life is about. We are to move forward. We are running a race. It's not about trying to be comfortable. It's not about just filling time. It is about being effective in what God has called us to do and running the race that God has given us with endurance. Now, here when it says, consider him, we are told three things about him in verse 2. Actually, let's go back and start reading in verse 1, just because I really want to gain the context here. But the three things that we're going to consider about him, as verse 3 tells us to do, are actually in verse 2. Okay? Do I have you guys totally confused now? We're going back to verse 1 so that we can do what verse 3 tells us so we can look at verse 2. All right? Clear, right? It's clear as a bell. All right, verse, uh, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility for sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. Verse three tells us three things about Jesus that we are supposed to consider. Number one, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one who started it. And if he started it in you, there's no reason to think that he's not gonna finish it, right? Some of you feel like God doesn't want anything to do with you anymore, that he's not gonna finish the work that he started. That's the first thing we're gonna look at. Second is that he endured the brutality of the cross. Let's not forget that crucifixion was a form of execution because Jesus is the most famous person to ever be crucified. And because his crucifixion was a sacrifice, sometimes we forget or don't put it in its proper place, at least, that it was a form of execution and that it was the most common form of execution under the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic. So for about a thousand years, it was the most common form of execution. Jesus was one of millions who over time was crucified. He just happens to be the most famous. And he endured the cross and he despised the shame. It says there in verse two, for the joy that was set before him. So my question that we want to look at is what was the joy that allowed him to endure the cross and despise the shame. What kind of difficulty may you be going through now as a Christian? What kind of struggles may you face that you might be able to endure for joy that is set before you? And then the Bible says there at the end of verse two, 
who endured for joy that was set before him, endured the cross and sat down by the right hand of the Father. And we're gonna look on how that encourages us that he sat down. So we start with the author and the finisher of our faith. Again, look at verse two, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Your salvation was not your idea. If from your perspective, it may look like it was. You may have found yourself kind of disillusioned with life. You may have thought thoughts of, you know, there's more to life and you began to think about God and you found yourself in church or maybe there's a friend of yours who was a Christian and you began to go to church and then you committed your life to Christ and you surrendered to him. So from your perspective, it looks like it was your idea. But Jesus said, no one comes to the son unless the father first draws them, which means that your initial response was a reaction, not an initiation. You didn't initiate the salvation, you were responding. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus knocks at the door of your heart, you open the door and you let him in. So he started it. Now, some of you guys say, well, he started it and I'm gonna finish it. No, the point is he started it and he is gonna finish it. It's not he started it and you finish it, he's the beginning and the end. Now, a couple of things that this tells us is, first of all, if you're a Christian, God wants you. Sometimes we feel like, you know what, I'm like a second-class Christian. Look at these guys. These people here are Christians, but not me. God really doesn't want me. I kind of crashed the party. Do you ever feel like you crashed the Christian party? Like you showed up and you really weren't invited, but God said, all right, come in. All right, you raised your hands. I guess you can come in. Didn't really want you here, but here you are. That can never happen. If you are a Christian, you are here because God said, I love you and I want you. I have a plan for your life. I have a purpose for you. Your life may be full of failures. You have maybe made foolish decisions, which doesn't surprise me because the Bible says that God has chosen the foolish of this world to confound the wise. Now, remember, Foolishness has nothing to do with IQ. Foolishness has to do with making foolish decisions. You can have really, really smart fools. Someone can be brilliant IQ-wise and make horrible decisions in their lives so they are foolish even though they are brilliant. So being foolish and chosen by God doesn't mean anything about our intellect. What it does say is that God reaches down to those who have lived their lives foolishly and he raises them up and he calls them. So if you feel like, you know what, I've sabotaged my life, I've made poor choices, I've made poor decisions, God doesn't really want me. Uh, wrong. God wants you because you made poor choices. Well, maybe I can't say that. I want to be careful not to speak for God. But they, they certainly make you a person who God reaches out and chooses because he chooses the foolish to confound the wise. So there's no way that you can feel like you don't belong. Not only do you belong, but God's got a plan and he has a purpose for you. Do you know that? He chose you, he started it, and he's got a plan and he's got a purpose for you. There is something you have been called to do. The Bible says that people around us see Christ in us, the hope of glory. You know what the hope of glory is? Eternity. When it says that Christ is in you and people around us see Christ in you, the hope of glory, it's saying that they see in you that which can give them hope that will save their lives through all eternity. 
We have the greatest call, the greatest cause, and he began it. Now, if he started it, he didn't start it to bail out halfway through. He didn't start it to go, you know what? I'm not going to bring this to the end. That's why Jesus says, I will leave the 99 and go after the one. That's why he reaches out to prodigals. That's why if you're a backslidden Christian here today, you love the Lord, you were committed to him, but you walked away. That's why Jesus is committed to you. He's committed to reach out to you, to draw you in. You're, you're here, not by accident. You're here because of the love that he has for you. And he's bringing you back, even as a prodigal. He is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. Therefore, let's finish the race. We're gonna finish it. Let's get back in it. Maybe you're on the sidelines now. Get back in the race and run it. Discouraged and weary? He's the author and the finisher. Second, it says that he who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It was necessary to endure the cross. I don't know that there is a more brutal form of execution when you take everything into account than crucifixion. Millions of people in history have been crucified. When you're crucified, they didn't always nail people to a cross, by the way. The Romans perfected that. The Romans perfected where to put the nails in and nailed people to the cross. And Jesus was nailed to the cross. But at times they would tie someone to the cross when they crucified them. It wasn't the nails that would kill them. It would add to the brutality of the cross. But just being hung on a cross, really immediately, it becomes very difficult. Just a, a few years ago, they did a study on young, healthy men. They took three guys, all 25 years old, all strong, strong, young men. And they crucified them in three different ways. When they crucified them, I don't, I don't mean they drove nails through their hands and feet. They tied them up in three different positions. One they tied up on a cross. The other one they tied up with his hands above his head. They crucified in different ways, by the way. The Romans were crucifying in different ways. Another guy they crucified the third way, and I can't remember how they did it. Not one of them lasted more than 15 minutes. They told him, as soon as you say to take us down, we'll take you down. And so they tied the one guy up in the way that Jesus was, and he lasted, I think, only like seven minutes. It was so brutal. Because what happens when you get into the cross is that your body slumps forward. Your body moves forward on the cross, which causes your chest to build pressure and to kind of collapse into itself, which, which allows you not to be able to breathe. The strongest drive that you have is the drive to breathe. And so on the cross, it takes away the ability to breathe. So you have to pull yourself up on the cross or push yourself up by your feet in order to breathe. When the Romans wanted to cause someone to live longer, they would give them a step under their foot or they would nail their feet to the step so you could lift up on the step. Or if they really wanted them to last a long time, they would put a seat on the cross so the person could sit on that seat and then they might be able to last for days and end up dying from exposure. But if you were crucified without a seat or without a step, you were not going to die of exposure. You were going to go through a writhing, painful death where your body would slump forward, it would crush your chest, you couldn't breathe, and the drive for breath became so strong that you would endure the pain of pushing up on the nails in your feet and pulling yourself up on the nails in your hands in order to take the next breath. Jesus didn't have to go through the cross. You remember that when Peter pulled out the sword to fight the arresting party, 
Jesus said, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I could call a legion of angels to help me right now? Not only do I think that he could have called a legion of angels, I think there was a legion going, let us go, let us go, let us do this. That heaven watched the Son of God be beaten, scourged, and crucified. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. When they laid that cross down on the ground and they laid him on it and they took his hands out to crucify him, he didn't scream and fight it. He laid his hands out. How many different things do you think that detail of men, this wasn't the only guy they crucified. How many things do you think they had heard? They'd heard people plea. They'd heard people bribe. Listen, don't do this, man. I'm rich. I got family. I've got money. Don't do this. I can get you money. If you let me go, I'll get you money. They'd heard curses, but I don't think they'd ever heard anybody say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus laid down his life and he endured that. In the garden, in fact, you remember that he prayed, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to do it because it was such a brutal form of torturous death. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, here's the question. Our text says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he despised the shame. What was the joy that was set before him? To answer that, turn with me to Psalms 22. Take the ribbon of your Bible and put it there in Hebrews 12 because we will return to it. And then go and find Psalms. Psalms 22 is an interesting chapter. First of all, it's a Psalm of David. Realize that David wrote not the majority of the Psalms, but he wrote more of them than anyone else wrote. Psalms 22 is a Psalm of David and it is a prophetic psalm. It is a psalm that tells the future. Now, the Bible is an incredible document. The Bible is accurate geographically, which other ancient religious books are not. Historically, it's accurate. The more archaeology discovers, the more it discovers that it was accurate historically and geographically. It's accurate scientifically. It's not a scientific book, but when it ventures into the realm of science, it's accurate. You know, the Bible talks about hydrology water evaporating up onto the mountains, raining back down and coming back down into the oceans. Thousands of years before men got a concept of what was really going on on the earth with hydrology and the way that water supplies itself through evaporations and storms and such, the Bible actually talks about it. It's accurate geographically, historically, scientifically, and prophetically. And that's maybe the most impressive. In other words, when the Bible ventures to tell the future, it tells it accurately. Do you know that the Bible says that in the last days that God would cause the nation of Israel that had not been a nation to be a nation again? And do you know that we are living in the days when Israel has become a nation? Do you know that for 2,000 years from 66 AD until 1947 that Israel was not a nation and the land of Israel was destroyed just as the Bible said it would be? And then God said, in the last days, I will cause the nation of Israel to be born again in a day. We are living in the last days. People say to me, do you think we're living in the last days? Yep, because Israel is a nation again and God foretold that it would happen. And we're living in those days. Not only did the Bible say that Israel was going to become a nation again, but that it was gonna become the center of conflict for the earth, that armies were gonna surround Israel. Do you also know that the Bible prophesies a conflict in Syria and a destruction of Damascus in the last days? All right, so we're seeing all of these prophetic things the Bible talks about coming to pass. Well, Psalms 22 is a prophetic passage, 
but it's prophetic in a different way. It's not talking about Israel or what's taking place. It's, it's talking about crucifixion. Psalms 22 is a document written a thousand years before the time of Christ and hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented. And get this, it is a first person account of crucifixion. What I mean by a first person account of crucifixion, it's not somebody watching somebody being crucified and writing about it. It's somebody who's being crucified, talking about what's going on in their mind. How would you ever find anything like that? It could only be God prophetically giving it to David or it's somebody that was rescued from crucifixion that wrote this psalm. It's someone who was crucified. We're gonna read, they pierced my hands and my feet. Not only is this a first person account of a crucifixion, but it starts off with Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani in the Hebrew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with he has done it or literally it is finished. This is not only a first person account, but it is us being able to get into the mind of Jesus from the time he cried out, God, why are you forsaking me? Until he said, it is finished. Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. He had been beaten, he'd been scourged, and then he had been crucified. And I believe that he went into shock and emotionally he struggled. Why isn't God rescuing me? And God answers that prayer. That's in essence what you find in Psalms 22. A guy who's being crucified, who asks to be rescued, and God says no and then gives him why, okay? Now remember, what are we looking for? What is the reason for the joy that was set before him, all right? So let's read Psalm 22. I'm in Proverbs, by the way, so let me get to Psalms. I'm not gonna go into great detail as I make my way through here. I'll make a few comments, but I wanna pretty much just read through this. It starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible tells us that Jesus became sin on the cross. And there was some kind of a separation for the first time ever between him and the Father. And I think at that point, Jesus wondered, why are you separated from me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? You remember that we're going to see he's going to be asking for help to be rescued from the cross. And from the words of my groaning, my God, I cry in the daytime and you do not hear and in the night season and am not silent. Remember that Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning and at noon, a great darkness fell over the earth. And not only is that darkness recorded in the Bible, but do you know that there are secular writings of a darkness around 32, 33 AD? There was a darkness at noon that other people wrote about. Doesn't just say it here, it actually happened. And during this dark moment when the Messiah was being crucified, God shut the lights off. God brought a darkness. Now, some people say it was, you know, it was this volcano or that volcano or that was the darkness that came upon the earth, whatever. If God used that, whatever. But God brought a supernatural darkness. And here, this man who's being crucified says, I cry out to you in the daytime and at the nighttime and you don't hear. He says, but you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you and were delivered and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. He says, you've delivered Israel. He's asking to be delivered. He says, but I am a worm and no man. Now, why would he call himself a worm? 
The word for worm here is a worm that when you crushed it, they became red and they would use these crushed worms to dye garments red. It's the way that they dyed crimson garment in their day. Jesus uses that word. He looks at his body, he sees the blood, and he says, I am one of these red worms and not a man. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.